0: Welcome to Drinks at Work by Boothby with Sam Bargrave. That's me. My guest on this episode is the New York-based Philip Duff. He's someone who began bartending at the age of 15. Sure, it was a different time back then. But he's someone who has created a unique career path all his own. At various times, he's been a bar owner, brand consultant, ambassador, writer, educator, brand owner. He travels all over the world sharing drinks knowledge and entertaining audiences. And he knows a thing or two about how liquor brands come to life. So this episode is one for any bartender or really anyone in the hospitality industry more broadly looking to build a career beyond the bar and becoming what Philip calls a portfolio person. So here's my chat with Philip Duff. Uh, Philip Duff, welcome to Drinks at Work by Boothby. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Hey, what's up, Sam? I know you got up really early, which means noon, to uh, (laughs) do this, so I appreciate that. It's good to see you again, mate. It's been too long.
0: Nice to see you too. I can see that what's in your glasses is a little bit different to what's in my mug. So, it's, Yeah, uh, you
1: know, yours is going to wake me up and mine is going to fuck me up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, thanks for joining me. I uh, wanted to do this interview for a while. You've, you've built an interesting kind of varied career in the world of drinks and you at various times had, uh, you've been a bartender, a bar owner, uh, an ambassador for hire, a, a consultant, a writer, a brand owner, an educator... Uh, am I missing anything? Perhaps uh, perhaps an NFT entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, no, I don't like to talk about my work at the uh, the Dolphin Sanctuary, and I don't like to talk about the volunteering <laughs> at the orphanage. It's just, a, it kind of sounds self-serving.
0: It does right? a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Given all those kind of different aspects of your career over the years, what is it about you that kind of draws you to that life? And uh, what is it about you that makes you suited to that kind of life, and building that kind of career?
1: yeah i mean honestly it's just i I consider the world of bars and drinks just like impossibly glamorous and i come from a tiny town of five thousand people in ireland so i was kind of seduced by the sort of sexiness of that first as a bartender and then eventually getting asked so much to be a consultant and then finally getting so drunk i once opened a bar which i would never do again (laughs) and you know sliding sideways into brand consulting i was having lunch in amsterdam in uh, 1 BC, that's one year before COVID, with my mate, Andrew Nichols. And Andrew's a young lad. He actually briefly worked for me at Door 74 in Amsterdam. And I was back in town for whatever reason, passing through Amsterdam, he lives there. And he's a South African. And Mm. he's, even by South African standards, he's a pretty direct guy. (laughs) And he said, Phil, you know what I respect about you more than anything? And I'm like, no. how you continue to make yourself relevant. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like I was about 70. You, know?
0: <laughs> well, you, you have been at this a while now, right? So uh, when, when was it you opened Door 74 in Amsterdam? What year was that? Uh,
1: 2009. Yeah. 2009. Uh, that was. But I, I started bartending when I was 15. So I got but... a, a good head start on it. And it wasn't cool. I don't think bartending was really cool. Until I was about 23. And I can date it precisely. Because that was 1995. Yeah. When the Atlantic Bar and Grill opened in London. And I had been living in London. I just left London. I was possibly the first ever foreign subscriber to Class Bar magazine. Mm -hmm. Right? Which is like Australian bartender with fewer pictures of David Spanton. (laughs) uh, I I think we all sort of realised, well, this is big. Right, because the Atlantic was a massive hit. And for a mm. while there, Nobody in America cottoned on to this new new old way of doing cocktails, you know, fresh juices, bitters, stirring some drinks, small glasses. And yeah. I, I distinctly remember in that period, American friends of mine would come over to visit me in Holland or I'd meet them in the UK and they would just rip the shit out of it. They'd be like, oh my God, you don't, you don't know, Phil. Like we do high volume in New York or Las Vegas. One of them literally said to me, we can't do fresh juice at our bar. What am I gonna have, a monkey squeezing juices? Three years later, that motherfucker was wearing a chef coat and calling himself a bar chef. So, <laughs> so yeah, I got, I got in on it early and I get bored easily, I suppose. That's one thing. Sure. And I, I am a firm believer that you should move out of your comfort zone. You should take on challenges. And I think you should be a bit of a portfolio person, right? Mm. By which I am a brand owner still, but that helps me be a better consultant, And being a consultant for other brands, whether it's doing education, training, writing, you know, widens my network, which helps Mm. my own brand, which helps my customers' brands. And most of all, it keeps me from getting bored.
0: So, Well, the kids today might say that you have a number of side hustles in a way. But it's kind yeah, of just I, how you built a career. No, it's
1: it's, it's I had there are more sides to my hustle than a dungeons and dragon die. It's there's there's no main hustle. <laughs> like my wife this morning, she 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 read one of those articles and she's like, fuck. And it was one of those things like, if you have any of these signs, you might be a high functioning person with anxiety. And she had all of them. <laughs> and I looked at them and I didn't have any. And she was like, You should probably have a few. Like, just yeah. to, just yeah. to get, you, get you going.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, this is what I'm kind of trying to get at. Is it, is it working for oneself in this way that you have? Is, that, is there a temperament that you have that you think's helped you along?
1: Yeah. The, and I'll, I hope this isn't a regular feature of Boothby, but I will actually be serious for just a moment. <laughs> I think the only thing that I'm truly generally better at um, most other people is that i'm good at taking information mm-hmm. assimilating it from way different sources and then boiling it down into something palatable and communicating it i'm essentially somebody who would be a teacher if teacher, teaching was better paid right. and that really helps it helps when you're teaching seminars it helps when i was supervising seminars for the tales of the cocktail festival it really helps with uh, brand creation, as I mentioned, I've got two completely pretty much clean slate projects here, mm. which are exciting to me, but also terrifying.
0: Right. Yeah, You've got right.
1: almost no no guardrails at all. But that's uh, that's the fun thing. And it beats, you know, sitting on the sofa drinking martinis at 10 in the morning, which is what I did for most of the last two years.
0: <laughs> what What was the last two years like for you, considering you're, you're in a lot of work than if that if the... the world shuts down, well, I guess everyone is in a way, but these kind of contracts and that sort of thing, they just, they can disappear overnight and then you gotta work out what the hell you're gonna do for the next however long. How'd you navigate that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I know all these people who learned a language and they got really fit and ripped. I didn't do any of that, but (laughs) the first six months were probably necessary of 2020. I was actually in New Zealand when it got really gnarly. And right. I just I just made it back to New York on St Patrick's Day, twenty twenty, March seventeen, uh, because in the two three in the three four years before I had been even by my standards traveling a lot. It was forty long haul countries a year. Mm. So the first six months I reconnected with uh, the wife. We had a really great time. It turned out we like each other because we spent more time together in those six months than the previous ten years. <laughs> and then yeah, all my all everything ended. So all my speaking at bar shows. All my consulting for clients because the whole entree had shut down. Mm. And that automatically meant that 2021 was buggered as well. Because liquor brand budgets are usually drawn up in October. And in October 2020, we were still, you know, deep, deep, deep in COVID. Mm. So I knew 2021 was going to be buggered as well. So, yeah, I uh, I did a few bits and pieces. I started a Clubhouse account. Which mm. was, you know, obviously very far-sighted of me. And the clubhouse is no more, but it was great, you know, connecting with people and interviewing people. That was fun.
0: Yeah, I did enjoy that chat. That was fun. I think it was about three a.m. in the morning, my time.
1: <laughs> yet Yes. Again, the time the time difference was was buggered. Yeah. But no, yeah. it was it was a weird one. I don't know if anybody truly had a non-weird lockdown. My wife was like mega productive it did begin to drag in 2021 so i started doing mm. a bit of travel again and we actually added export countries for my brand old of geneva which was crazy so i was right. doing like launches on instagram live and stuff
0: so <laughs> that's a different way of doing things huh um oh, for a long time you were the director of uh the tales of oh, sorry director of education at tales of the cocktail as you mentioned you've spoken at pretty much every bar conference on every in every country that ever has had one Do you think these are still relevant today for bartenders and brands trying to either build their their brand's kind of reputation or a bartender's reputation as well?
1: Yeah, they are. But, you know, it's sort of like bar shifts and takeovers and and things like that. Everyone's doing it now. So you have to stand out. Like in the beginning... And again we're stretching back to the 90s we we really needed bar shows and things like tales because there was no way to disseminate knowledge most people didn't have high-speed internet mm. um, there weren't the cocktail books there are now we didn't have the cocktail writers we have now so if you wanted to know how to make a penicillin you literally had to go to milk and honey if you wanted to know yeah. how to make this drink by salvatore Calabresi or whatever so we really needed them and now of course everything is online all the time it's constantly iterating and updating so as my friend Eric Alperin says a lot of people come to seminars and bar shows just to to see the monkeys in the cage right to say oh I I shook so and so's hand which is very valuable it really really is and seminar wise you do see that there's maybe a lot of mediocre ones but the ones that are good are really good yeah right there, there's yeah. people who are really bringing something uh, new and interesting to the table and it you know it remains a challenge to stand up in front of uh, maybe a couple of hundred people some of whom might have even paid for their ticket and deliver them something in excess of whatever it was that they did pay
0: yeah how do you go about because you're still doing these these seminars how do you go about finding uh, new and interesting things to talk about especially now that the spirits and cocktail world has been so covered uh, we've gone into Every nook and cranny of, uh, you know, the way drinks are are made and and bars are made and everything. How do you find the thing that is interesting and will hold people's attention for a while?
1: Well, I'm a firm believer that if you are a good speaker, you can talk to people about anything and you have to be really into your topic as well. So some of it can come maybe from clients or sponsors that approach you because you might not have thought of it. Right, you mm. might be approached by a vodka brand, you'd be like, vodka, and I it's like, okay, fine, maybe I need to really learn more about vodka, or I need to come up with a way to make this relevant for the audience that I'm talking to, and that's a good challenge. Mm. And if I like, I read you know, I read several books a week, I'm an inveterate reader, so I'm always looking for things to expand my mind a little bit, and I yeah. don't even need to think about thinking about making it relevant for the bar world anymore it yeah. sort of seems to happen on autopilot it's difficult Not when you're under the gun as someone says we need a seminar topic for next month then it's like fuck.
0: <laughs> what did i do last time how can i tweak that um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you when it comes to the public speaking thing is that something that always came naturally to you uh, or is it something that you've worked on over the years
1: no i don't think i was very good at all in the beginning so sorry if you saw one of my early seminars But I used to read the lesson in church at home, and it wasn't that I had a particular religious calling. All the kids had to take turns to do it. That was it, you know. Right. So from the age of about 12, I used to speak in front of a full church, and I thought that was very cool, you know, keeping their attention and stuff like that. And I was also fortunate in the beginning of my career as a consultant and a brand ambassador that there was basically no internet, Right. Mm. And people didn't have camera phones. So you could write a PowerPoint of your seminar in January and you would just tour the world. Right. Sure. I, I would hit up a couple of dozen countries. So about March, I'd be pretty good. You right. know, it's like it's like the Beatles in Hamburg. I think you really do need to put in the 10,000 hours of practice and all that. So, well, that's I think that's, 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 that's the st- only way to do
0: it. That's the how the, the standups, I mean, definitely used to do it. They'd have the one bit of material that they would refine and refine and refine as they went to all the clubs around the Around the place.
1: Well, unlike, unlike some stand-ups, nobody has ever rushed on stage and slapped me, so I've got <laughs> that going for me.
0: Not yet, Phil. Not yet, yeah, yeah. There's,
1: there's somebody out <laughs> listening to this saying, that would be a great idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, when are you coming <laughs> to Australia? Yeah. <laughs> um, given, given you have done all this consulting for brands, um, uh, being there at the, the, in the ideation phase for new brands and everything, what on earth would make you go ahead and start your own brand, uh, Old Duff Geneva?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I had spent so long like saying to people, oh, I'm going to start my own brand, that eventually I, be- I shamed myself into doing it. <laughs> right? And I did think to myself, okay, look, you know, this is a manageable thing or potentially a manageable thing. And it would be a great visiting card, a great example of my skills for my brand clients, which is still the majority of my income and my work. Mm. Like I could say, well, look, look what I've done with you know zero money and, and all that sort of thing. And that has actually proven true. And the yeah. other thing is, I really felt there was a, a gap in the market for a proper, real Dutch Geneva, balls to the wall. As, as we like to say, the, the Del McGay of uh, Geneva's. Uh, mm. Whether there was a lot of money in that or not, I felt it was something that was ready. And right. it's been, you know, we've been extremely fortunate. It's been very well received.
0: Can, for people who are unfamiliar with it, can you tell us what says Old Duff apart?
1: Almost all the Geneva that you've ever had is not made in Holland. And almost mm-hmm. all the Geneva that you've ever had says it's made in Holland. So that's that's problem number one. So all the big distilleries don't actually make the stuff themselves. They buy it in from a very great distillery. All of them, the big guys, actually from the same distillery, which is in Belgium. And as long yeah. as they bottle it in Holland, they can say made in Holland. So that's a bit sneaky and you can't really get away with that kind of thing anymore. Yeah. The second thing is when you drink Old of Geneva, especially the black bottle 100% malt wine you're not drinking like in the 1800s you're drinking like in the 1600s right. like the story sounds it sounds almost over the top like it starts with the grain being milled in a windmill which is the oldest tallest operating windmill in the world from 1785 yeah. right and it's pure wind power and milling stones and then it's brought about 100 feet across the street into the distillery which is run by a family that have been doing this in a continuous unbroken line since 1777 Then it's distilled three times in a pot still. And then a little bit of juniper, a little bit of hops. And you are as as close as you could get, really Mm. in a practical sense, to drinking the spirit, you know, that has been drunk continuously in Australia since its foundation. In fact, even before Australia was Australia, some of those VOC ships that crashed into Western Australia, they probably uh, had a few drinks on the coast before fucking off home or onto Indonesia. It's what is, you know, the best selling spirits in Argentina it's what fueled the United States, Asia. It was being drunk in China. It's 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 almost absurd. And you know that's to be able to create a little bit of liquid history and be the person bringing that back is kind of cool.
0: Why, why hadn't someone done that before you?
1: Well, the thing is, the big companies are big companies, right? right? Even though by global standards they're maybe not all that big, and they all make much more money doing something else. Right, they okay. they they make more money with vodka, they make more money with liqueurs, and they tend to be the kind of companies where nice, you know, well educated middle class kids get jobs after their MBAs, and if you look at the balance sheet for Geneva, it's horrendous. Yeah. But then again, <laughs> the business plan for artisanal mezcal would have been laughed out of every boardroom in the world in the nineteen eighties mm-hmm. or even the nineteen nineties, so. The, the reason that it's not a logical thing is the opportunity for scrappy little upstarts like myself. Yeah. Right. And that's that's I think that's kind of the only way to get into the drinks business. So unless, you know, your grandfather bought Bitcoin in 1982 and left it all to you, it's very, very hard. And like literally these days, big companies, they're they're stru- it's structurally impossible to innovate right because right. nobody wants to be in charge of an R&D department where 94% of all the investment goes down the toilet and the other thing is everybody everybody in the organization wants to have a fingerprint on every project on the off chance that it might be successful right, right. we've heard the saying success has many fathers but failure is a bastard yeah. and what that means is for if you if you're you know inside a company and you want to start something truly innovative um, you'll get death by a thousand cuts. There'll be meetings with 20 people and somebody say, could we make the bottle a bit lighter? What if we made it green? What if it was 37% instead of 42%? Yep. And your your project is buggered before it ever gets a chance.
0: Right. Is this is this an experience you have often when you're dealing, oh, as a brand consultant, they're hiring you in, but then they're also sending this stuff out to committee?
1: Uh, not generally, because I try to discourage people from hiring me at all. And... <laughs> um, i very often my job is to be an asshole which i've been training for my whole life and i find that very valuable right because i'm the person you can hire i'll come into a room i don't know who's there i don't need to know who's there i don't care if that fat dude in the corner is a ceo if an Mm. idea is shit i'm gonna say it's shit right and i have built up a fairly loyal following of clients some of whom i've had for many years and they they realize this is a kind of a shortcut to innovation for them, right? Yeah. Instead of having an in-house asshole, they've outsourced it to me.
0: Yeah.
1: Right, because you do you need to be a bit of a monomaniacal dick, right? Right to create a brand. Like who the hell do you think you are? Well, if, you know, if this was a good idea, somebody would surely have done it already. Mm. So you do need a bit. It's like opening a bar. Everybody will tell you not to open a bar, and they're right. Yeah. yeah? They're yeah. absolutely right. But you open the bar anyway. What the hell? And maybe it works. And then you've opened mm. a bar and that's an amazing thing. Right? So you've seen the thing that other people couldn't see.
0: Yeah. So there's some power in saying no to people.
1: It's There's immense power, but it's, it, it's a form of self-care, as the young people listening might appreciate. <laughs> because you are your brand, but you, your brand is also what you're not. Not just what you are, it's what you're not. Like I'm sure many of your listeners have had the experience, it started for me as a young bartender. Someone's like, oh, you know, can you come and be a consultant for me, write the cocktail list and all that. And what happens is, you know, you write a cocktail list, maybe you train the staff, maybe you write a manual, and they just go away and cock it all up, right? Yeah, Because they thought they were just buying in a function, like you had a magic wand. Mm. But you thought you were a teacher. And you, if you're like me, you thought, oh, well, you know, they'll they'll listen to everything. Surely I've left them a manual and a spec sheet. And they'll just like start with that. And they'll get better and better and better. Mm. Right. And it, yeah. it just it almost doesn't work. It almost never works that way. Yeah. Right. The same, same, same is true of drinks companies. Like sometimes you'll be brought in and it's like, can you make some cocktails for this brand? That's an easy one. But if it's like, okay, we want to we speak to the entree, we want to communicate with the entree, which is mostly my gig. yeah. And I'm like, eh, all right, well, I don't know, maybe you should not have a, a bright blue product or maybe you should, I don't know. Yeah. But it's much easier to engineer something from the ground up, which is why I love brand creation projects.
0: What does make a great idea for a new brand? <laughs> what are the sort of hallmarks that you see in the things that succeed?
1: Oh, nobody's got any fucking idea, least of all me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's I, the most I was,
0: honest answer you're going to get from any of these kind of conversations no one knows no, anything
1: no my memoir is going to be called nobody has a fucking clue yeah. uh, like David Gluckman who invented Baileys invented Siroc, invented Tanqueray 10 invented the Singleton and he wrote a book called that shit will never sell because when he took a prototype of Baileys to the USA and he showed it to the CEO of a large chain of liquor stores the guy tasted it and said that shit will never sell nobody yeah. Like, everybody likes to say, oh, we were in the team that built Fireball. We were in the team that did this, did that. Nobody ever admits to being on the losing team. No one says, like, oh, I was the marketing director for Turi Vodka. Right? And unfortunately, you're probably seeing this in Australia, not that many people are probably admitting to having been on the 42 Blow uh, team back in the day. Because (laughs) its new owners have fucking shit on it, like a redheaded stepchild. So... Mm. The the issue I feel is love forty two below vodka by the way, uh, I think. But that was, issue, that was
0: huge when it launched. I remember when that launched. And it was different and it was exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you need to see the gap in the market, see the market in the gap, and know that it might not work. Your idea might not work, but what definitely won't work is doing nothing. Right. Like I was actually. I wasn't, I wasn't really a midlife crisis, but I was thinking of doing the thing I had never, ever done before when I launched Old Dutch Geneva, which was go back to uh, college and get an MBA. I, I thought that I would really like that, you know, and then I could maybe continue being a consultant or some company would hire me. And, it, you know, it cost about 200 grand. And I thought, well, look, I could take that money and go back to school mm. or I could launch a brand. And that's like giving myself an MBA with a graduation class of one. And that's what yeah. I've done. I thought I couldn't learn much. and uh, Now, four and a half years on, it was so worth it. It, really, yeah. it was really, really worth it. But to go back to it, nobody has any clue what works in this industry. So you might as well just try something.
0: What, what advice would you give to someone wanting to start a brand to get out there and, and get maybe the first you know hundred yards down the road?
1: Yeah, do it, do it quick and dirty yeah. if you can um you know get some liquid get a label get close and like literally test it out with your mates and then branch out to you know convince a bar try it out for a weekend test it out a bit more and based on that like really shonky really wonky say to yourself all right do you have a chance to do this you might need to go and raise a bit of money if you don't have any money lying Mm. around um definitely do a bit of research but not too much because nobody knows fucking anything they're like we're not sitting around drinking a lot of acai gin or acai whiskey or acai vodka but i can tell you 10 years ago all those million dollar research reports were pushing brazilian rainforest acais the next big flavor so don't do too much research and this is the classic advice for everybody in every business um work out what your strengths are if you really really love distilling you shouldn't start a brand because distilling is the thing you will not have any time to do, mm. right? If you love bartending, you probably shouldn't start a bar, because as the owner, you don't get to bartend anymore, right? Yeah. You get to, you get to mop toilets on a good night, yeah. Right? Clean so the spew
0: off the walls.
1: Yeah, people want to poke the monkey in the cage. They like as as distill ventures. The incubator arm of Diageo likes to say Johnny Walker's dead, right? Jack Daniels is dead, but people can shake your hand, right? So. Whether you want to or not, you've got to pack your bags, get on the fucking road, shake hands, kiss babies. That's the best use of your time. So I mm. would, I am strongly on the side of like, don't build your distillery. Don't distill it in your back garden. Find a distiller. There's like, a, there's one every four houses in Australia from what I can tell these days. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, find somebody who's good at packaging design, not just somebody you like on Instagram because they're mm. cheap. Right? There's a saying yeah. in Dutch that... uh Cheap is expensive, right? It's, yeah. it's like if you think uh, a professional is expensive, just, you know, try an amateur.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and yeah, hang in there. That's really it. The overnight success really is 10 years in this business.
0: How, how much do you credit your packaging design for uh, the success of Old Duff so far? Uh, how they, much of that is, is important to getting into people's mouths?
1: Oh, it's at least 50%. Like with bartenders, um, it's easy. Some of them might even know me. I can go in, I can talk to them. And it makes a bit of sense. But when, like the bottle really is your silent salesperson, right? And there are people who have ordered cases and cases of stuff just based on the bottle design, which was by the Rooster Factory. It's an agency in California. It's actually a French husband and wife. uh, And the wife was actually my client back in the day when she set up her agency. I was her first clients and they're spectacular they're yeah. they're so so good uh because they as good agency people were happy to tell me to fuck off if i had hired an american agency everything i wanted they would have said oh sure that's an amazing idea how clever how did you get so clever right yeah. just so long as you keep paying and they they fought me at every turn which was amazing they, they did to me what i usually do to my clients for which yeah. i appreciate them very much no packaging design can almost not be overstated, it's it's so important.
0: In this world of social media that we live in, it's different, as we were talking about, uh, coming up as a bartender today than it was 20, 20 years ago or so. Do you think social media is it like a net positive or a net negative for building a career in drinks today?
1: It is what it is. And I, I would say net positive, but yeah. it is all about how you use it. It's like saying, you know, axes, good or bad. Well, it all depends if somebody's chasing you with one, right? If you need to if you need to cut down a tree, an axe is excellent.
0: Sure.
1: No, it, it really, you can make networks uh, faster and more effectively. You can be a brand online. I always respect people who have enough discipline not to mm. fo- post shitty photos or whatever. Like, everything's immaculate and all that. I really respect that. That's not that, me. Right? Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> Definitely not. No, I I really do respect that. And as your career builds, you know, you keep adding people that you've met to your your Instagram or TikTok or whatever it might be. And after a few years, you're still in touch with those people you met once on a brand trip to France, you know, eight years ago or something like that. And those weak ties, as they're called, are actually more important for your network than your best mate that you went to high school with or your brother's friend who went to college with them like yeah. weak ties are actually where the power of networks come from this has been like uh, okay. you know demonst- demonstrate it's not somebody who owes you a favor it's when you you know you put a post out like hey how would you do this or can someone help me with that and it could be someone you haven't spoken to in eight years that's that's the real power of it i feel so a right. net positive but uh, with the caveat of be careful how you use it
0: yeah last question for you i think uh the career progression used to be it was bartender to, to brand ambassador to sort of maybe bar owner now it feels like that's changed a bit it feels like the world's opened up a bit more what are the opportunities that you think people should be looking at today where do you think they can go and build a sort of a bigger career outside the bar perhaps
1: it's a really good question and it changes every year i mean the one that's on most young people's minds at the moment is essentially being a content creator right you make videos and blogs and tick tocks and Substacks and how to's and you have an only fans like whatever it might be you're you are <laughs> you are a content creator as you are actually sam right mm. so that's an option for a lot of people the traditional career options are still there you know you can be a bartender you can be bar owner you can have a very happy life and the ambassador thing as well but with the ambassador thing is that you know once you get up in your 40s The funnel for ambassadors tends to really narrow. And once you get like people, ambassadors over the age of 50 or even 60, it tends only to be like, for instance, the whiskey and the cognac people. Yeah. Right. And it's now, which I think is a tremendous waste, by the way. But Mm. I think it's more about having a portfolio career. Like there's a bartender I saw in a bar a couple of months ago here in New York. And I said, oh, hey, Nicole, great to see you and i had a good long chat with the bar manager and later i went back up to the bar and good to see you so you're gonna be here um next you know wednesday she's like no no i only bartend two nights a week now Right. and i'm like oh what what do you do because this was just after the pandemic for all i knew mm. she'd become a funeral director or something yeah <laughs> oh, uh, <Jesus. laughs> uh, no she's like this was uh October last year, right? So we, we were kind of out of the pandemic here in New York, at least. Yeah. And she's like, no, I'm doing like four or five cocktail classes a day online. And actually per day, I'm earning more than bartending.
0: Wow. And,
1: you know, I can do it all from my kitchen. And
0: yeah.
1: those, you know, there's a company that hires her and takes care of all the invoicing and whatnot. So we didn't see the pandemic coming. We didn't see those opportunities arising. But mm. well, I do think that the bar industry remains the greatest springboard to assembling a network, right? You can, you know, your customers will love you. You will meet so you will never meet more people in the course yeah. of a single day than when you're bartending, especially in a hot bar. So that remains something to do. And I think you probably might start thinking about moving out from behind the bar in, you know, your mid to late 30s just for a new challenge, if anything else.
0: Yeah. Well, the body starts to break down a little bit as well, you know. Are you got any plans to come out to Australia anytime soon? Because it's been a while since you've been here, I think. It's overdue. Has.
1: It is. <laughs> I, I am overdue, just so that somebody can run on stage with a fucking gun or something. <laughs> no, just a slap.
0: Just a slap. Just, just a
1: mean. slap. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> fucking hell. Yeah. I mean, Australia is probably the country where it would be. No, not at the moment. I tend to do uh, a bit of an Asia-Pacific tour, and as, as you know, China is, is locked down, tighter than it ever yeah. was. And it's pretty rough in Hong Kong now. And you need visas, which you never needed before, and they don't give them out, right? So uh, I am seeking a distributor in Australia, if anyone's listening. So that'll be an excellent excuse for me to to come mm. back and do a bar tour because and I'm not, I'm not just saying it for you Sam but I've been saying this for a very long time from even before I was a columnist in Australian Bartender magazine mm. I think pound for pound the Australian on trade is the best place in the world for cocktails and it just continues to be right on my mm. most recent visit which I think was 2019 I just continued to be blown away by bartenders both in you know, famous bars and ones I had never heard of, right? People who knew they weren't in, you know, the hottest, sexiest places who were doing like remarkable things yeah. and, and also an extremely hospitable uh, group of people as well. So.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty great place to drink at. <laughs> uh, well, Philip Duff, thanks for joining me on Drinks at Work. I really appreciate you talking to me.
1: My pleasure, Sam. look forward to, uh, to listening to the episode when it comes out.
0: <laughs> oh, we didn't talk about your podcast. Tell me about your podcast. Oh, that's right. Let's do that. hold-
1: yeah, no, you can't see it because this is uh audio, but I'm holding up a sign saying, ask me about my fucking <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Now, clearly there aren't enough white guys doing podcasts, so Mm. I finally thought two years after everyone stopped listening to them that I would launch one. So The Philip Duff Show is on YouTube, where I've recorded the PowerPoint decks of some of my most popular seminars with audio narration. That's all a bit serious, but on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and everywhere else, you can hear the audio of those. But you will also hear interviews We're up to episode six or seven now. So we've got Dan Dunn, the imbiber. And I've just edited a hilarious two and a half hour session. And session is the word that I had with the New York drinks writer, Tony Sachs, the other day. That was brilliant. We we shit upon every basketball playing celebrity who started a (laughs) tequila brand. And Tony came up with uh, the most brilliant saying, which is uh, Teflon spirits right? They're so nondescript, you don't know you've drunk them a second after you swallow them.
0: I'm definitely going to be borrowing that for sure. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Phil. It was very nice to talk to you again. Thanks, Sam. Likewise. Thank you to Philip Duff for joining me and thank you to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please give it a rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever you get yours. And if you've got some thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, my email is sam at boothby.com.au. It would be great to hear from you. Until next week, this has been Drinks at Work by Boothby.